OG Middleman Podcast. Welcome. Got a great cast lined up for you or a show, whatever you want to call it. Got a very special guest, someone that I've been anxious to interview. And uh, I am very excited about having him on. I'll give you a little hint about who I got coming on. Ready? That's right. No, it's not Jamie Lee Curtis. I said him, and it's not Donald Pleasance. And it's not John Carpenter. (laughs) It is the producer of Halloween, Erwin Yablons, will be on the podcast today. We're going to talk about his career in Hollywood. It's very interesting. But we're going to talk a lot about the making of Halloween, the idea coming up for it. What I didn't know, it's kind of fascinating, he's still raking to this day. He's still making money on the franchise or on Halloween in so many ways. It's actually amazing. After all this time that the movie still cuts checks for him. This is why people get into the movie business. They get in because once you hit the lottery, which is basically what he did. Excuse me. He hit the lottery. And once it starts to generate income and you've created a cultural phenomenon, it just continues. There's just a million ways to make money. It's like writing a hit song. Unbelievable. So we got him on the on the cast today, and uh, we'll spend uh, about an hour with him on the phone. Um, some interesting stuff. Um, you know, one of, one of the most popular things to talk about on podcasts is true crime. And... It, I think the most popular podcast actor is actually is is about true crime and and what these podcasts do is they they pick a particular case and then they just follow it throughout its entirety. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, one that's going on now is this Murdoch case, which I had not been following by the way. I, okay, so it's a story that's kind of repeats itself. Um, rich man gets in trouble and has to kill people, and he's got the, you know, the law behind him, and and blah blah blah. Money is going to help you get off. But I didn't know how far this had gone back in in his life, and the, the crap that he did, and the stuff that happened to his family awful. I watched a a three-part documentary on it. It was on HBO last night. I was stunned. Wife, son, housekeeper. Just the, the, the tentacles that are attached to that name in that area of South Carolina and all the stuff that's happened to it to now, to what, to what they discovered now. It's, awful. 
It's absolutely awful. But these are the kind of things that people tune into that they like to listen to or watch on television. I'm one of them. I don't follow the podcast yet. Maybe I should. I should listen to them and see how they do it. It actually gave me an idea. But we have one of those situations going on where we live now. Where I live. I should say we. But where I live. In California. And it's an awful story. So I just want to premise that what happened here in our tiny little suburb in California is awful. These things happen every day somewhere. It's not an isolated thing. It's not unique to us. This happens. But what I'm talking about is the case of, they call her a socialite. Her name uh, is Rebecca Grossman. And if you're around here, you know the story. If you're not, um, Rebecca Grossman is married to a a doctor, um, Peter Grossman, whose father, or he did, he founded um, the Grossman uh, Foundation uh, or the Grossman Burn Hospital. Uh, It's a hospital that specializes in burns. And... uh, they're pretty known around here, and you do see them in in social circles. Obviously, extremely wealthy. And she was involved in a tragedy. She was leaving a restaurant one night with, quote-unquote, a friend. who's actually a former baseball player by the name of Scott Erickson. He was leaving, they were leaving this restaurant, they had had cocktails, and the story goes that she was on this road and was speeding or racing, something to that effect. All, all, we, can, all we know is that the, the car registered that she was traveling almost 80 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone and tragically struck two children who are walking across the street with their family and those children died. They were killed. And it happened, you know, in kind of early evening. I I remember when it happened. That was about three or four years ago. I say, I want to say it's three years ago now. And, you know, it was just awful. Beautiful children, beautiful family. Should have never happened. It was just terrible. Um, I just my deepest sympathies to the family who were going through this. It was just an just incredible tragic. But it's now turned into a quagmire of is she going to get off because of her fame and money? The lawyer for her is, they've tried to have the case dismissed. There are some outlandish claims now coming out. I actually read that there's a possibility she's going to say that she did not hit them and that was the 
other person who was driving the car. They're trying to basically trying to sow doubts in whether or not she did it. There's all kinds of things. The road was not lit enough. There was a blind spot. All these kind of things are going to go about. So they have had the case delayed for a very long time. I don't, and I don't agree with it. I think, you know, she, it's clear that she struck those children took their lives, don't know if she was drunk or not. According to the test results from her blood, she was under the legal limit. She was under the legal limit. So um, as far as that goes, if the tests are accurate, she wasn't drunk. We don't know all the evidence yet. There's a lot of evidence that hasn't been shared yet. So that will start to come out. But this is going to go to trial. And there's going to be a lot of information that's going to come out. So I'm going to kind of follow that as this happens. I don't know if I'm going to go to the courthouse and sit there and then, you know, kind of talk about, you know, from there. I'm going to, I'll talk about the results as I hear about them. There's a lot of stories about what happened, you know, that are, that are starting to leak into the community. There's people who know the family and have heard certain things and people who know her. And, you know, once she tells someone else and even though they're sworn to secrecy and that's not how it works, it does get out. So little drips and drabs of things have come in that I didn't know about that were fascinating to me that, you know, whether or not they play a part of the outcome of this story is, I don't know, but the reality is, Two young boys were killed. They were hit by a car. It is, at minimum, vehicular manslaughter. And prison time is warranted for this. How much prison time is not for me to decide. I don't know how that works. But for sure, there should be prison time. And from what I understand, the lawyers for her are going to do everything they can to not to keep her out of prison. I personally think she should have stepped up and said, okay, I did this. I'm sorry. Uh, this is awful. It was a tragic accident. Yes, I was negligent. I was speeding. I wasn't paying attention. I'm ready. I'm willing to pay the consequences. That's the way it works in humanity. You don't try, you don't hire a very expensive lawyer and then try to figure out ways to say that it wasn't your fault. If you were speeding in a on a street that the speed limit was 45 miles an hour and you hit someone, you're responsible. Period. End of discussion. Over. It's uh, black and white to me. But as is always the case, people of influence are going to try and figure out a way to get out of these things. I'm, it's, she is not well liked. I follow certain blogs and, you know, other kind of social media trails and they see her nothing short of a monster. And I understand their feelings on all of this. 
I understand there's feelings on all this, absolutely. That was my initial reaction. However, there is a process, and the process has to be followed. And people of influence have particular ways to create a longer process. I think the case is going to start to be tried, you know, in spring. So in a couple of months, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be, this is for this area. This is like OJ. This is like OJ. I have not wanted to talk about this. I didn't quite, you know, I've, I've, I've talked with my wife about it and, you know, she said, be very careful in the way you talk about this. And, and I am. I'm going to be very careful. I'm going to be sensitive to this. I'm, I am sensitive to this. It's not, it's, this is not trying to, you know, create sensationalism on anything. I'm, I'm not even saying that I'm choosing a side on this. I'm, I'm just going to kind of repeat what's happening out there. I already told you my opinion. She is guilty. She, she should spend time in prison. There is... There is no doubt about that. And if she tries to get out of that in any way at all and say it's completely not her fault and she shouldn't spend time in prison, then I'm going to then I will be a little bit more verbose about my disagreement with it. So I will I will talk about this and I have a stack of information on my on my desk right now. I'm I'm been holding. I've been gathering notes. I've outlined some things, some stuff that I've heard and rumors that I've heard. And I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do a little to, you know kind of a podcast topical thing here on this case. It'd be interesting. So watch for that. I'll you know just call it the, the Grossman podcast part one and and we'll talk about it. And, and you know if anybody wants to come on the show and talk about this if anybody has an opinion anybody has a story that they want to share with me if they want to be live or they just want to share it with me give me some information um, you can reach me the OG middleman podcast at gmail.com just send me an email and uh I'll give you a call. We can talk about it and have you on there or, or whatever information you want to share. I'm interested in to hear. Um, another quick thing that I'm, I'm going to kind of want to talk about really briefly is this, um, the insanity that's going on with George Santos. And it's the fact that this guy is still is still there as a representative for his district is mind boggling. It's a man who, and I've talked about this on a previous podcast, who has lied about 70% of who he described himself to be. He lied to his constituents. He lied to people that voted for him lied to people that supported him, lied to people that were giving him money. And we discover this now, and the man sits there and casts votes on laws every day. It's shocking that he hasn't stepped aside. I don't understand this. 
I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to know the backdoor conversations that are happening because it's obviously a seat that would be up for dispute. And we know how Congress is, the razor thin margin that Republicans have, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, so the most recent news is that the health ethics, health, House Ethics Committee is going to launch an investigation into George Santos. I wonder why it took so long. And he admitted to his fabrication of his biography, as well as, you know, he's been accused of breaking some, you know, uh, finance laws as, as, as it relates to campaigns, raising money for campaigns, and a host of other things, including some, some weird thing about a dog and a GoFundMe story. It's insane. Um, the other news politically is that the Department of Justice has said that former President Donald Trump can does not deserve immunity from three civil lawsuits accusing him of inciting the Capitol attack on January 6th. That's three now. You can rest assured there's going to be many, many others. Many others. Why not? If they're saying that the, the three that are already in there, yeah, okay, we can sue. There are a lot of people that were affected by this and that were driven by this fucking nut job who became president. Yeah, all you people who voted for Donald Trump, you made him president. Just crazy. Crazy. So he's going to be up. He's going to get sued by multiple people. It's going to drag him and his lawyers into court. But, you know, you know, he's okay. He's going to make more money because you're going to continue to donate $5 to buy a bottle of water from him or a fucking red hat or whatever else he's trying to peddle to you suckers out there. Doesn't really matter. You put it out there, oh, I'm making a book on how to become president. Look at me. You know, uh, my autobiography. You want to know I'm the greatest president of all time? Come buy it. Wow. The cult of personality. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Man, I, I just remember these, these conversations we had. I had with people when he was running for president and just... Yeah, you know, we need a change. We need someone who's this, you know, we can't have everything the, the same politics. You're right. We need a change. Well, why would you take him? Because he was there? Because he was the one? He was the chosen one? Kidding me? Just this, it's just too many things to talk about on why he didn't deserve to be president and what he did to the country and what he did to the world. Just awful. I, I dislike that guy so much. I dislike him so much. 
and 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 he gets he's can he gets whatever comes to him, man. He deserves whatever comes to him right now for sure. And I hope it's a lot. But he has a lot of money. He's going to continue to get money because he's going to keep doing these tours. And all you suckers are going to show up and pay for them. Because you're all suckers. I remember when, when he ran for president, I read an article that said Donald Trump is going to destroy the Republican Party. Well, he did. Now it's the most divided ever. You could put any Democrat up there and he's going to beat any Republican because it's so divided. You can't get your shit together. All right. Um, we will be right back with um, Erwin Yamblon's producer of Halloween. This is the OG Middleman. All right, um, we have one of my all-time movie producers in my life, I should say. Um, Halloween, if you've heard my previous podcast, Halloween is one of my all-time favorite movies. And on the line with me right now is Erwin Yablons, the producer for Halloween. Say hi, Erwin. Hi. Erwin, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I know your son very well, and I've mentioned to him many times that I wanted to spend some time with you on the phone and and talk about your, you know, not just Halloween, but um, I also found out through Mickey that you did Roller Boogie, too. Oh, yeah. That was my big musical. That was your big musical. Did did you, was it your idea, uh, the movie for Roller Boogie? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, it was an idea that I got because my wife and daughter were always skating down at the down by the Venice Pier, uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to know what was going on, so I went down there to see what was happening, and there it was, this, this incredible phenomenon of people <laughs> all on skates with disco music, and I said, oh my gosh, there's a movie here. I kind of kind of thought of those movies that were popular when I was a kid, with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, let's put on a show kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a lot of films that where teenagers got into some kind of fad. Well, this sound like, seemed like a natural. Is that how you kind of come up with, you know, you're kind of just walking around in everyday life and then you, you see something and say that would make a great movie and you go ahead and start to produce it? Pretty much, yes. Uh, for example, uh, I made a movie called Seduction with Morgan Fairchild. And I got that from a newspaper story about a, it's become common now, but it was pretty novel then, about a, a stalker, a stalker, a woman. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, what about a newscaster? Because they're, they're, they're exposed every day. Right. And that's that idea. Uh, uh, another another example of, of uh, <laughs> I made a movie called Prison, which was a pretty good movie. Which, Vigo Mortensen's first film, mm -hmm. uh, and that idea I got because I was reading an article about the lack of prison space uh, because of the in many prisons because the convict rate was going up and 
who were trying to build new prisons to house them. And I thought to myself, wow, what about an old prison that's reopened uh, and it's haunted? <laughs> so that's what it was. We made a movie about a haunted prison. We filmed that in Wyoming. I got, I got the state of Wyoming to give me the Rollins State Penitentiary that had been closed down. It was a real gothic, horrible place. So, and, uh, so, so, mo so, so movies like that, you, you know, as the producer, um, you're kind of leading the entire project then, right? I mean, you do everything from, from finding the, you know, the sites and, and, and finding actors. That's your, that's your job as the producer. Cause I'm not, I'm not in oh, the industry, it's, obviously. It's everything from, from creating the idea to sometimes writing <clears throat> the outlines and, hiring writers, that, that's the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then later on, casting and all the things that a producer does, but in my particular case, since I'm an independent, I am not constrained by any studio. I was able to be hands-on and have, have complete control, of good or bad. And uh, uh, that, that follows through with the post-production with the music and cutting. And, and, and in my case, I, I, did, I distributed my own movies as well. Mm -hmm. So it was a pretty all-encompassing situation. It was, it was very exciting because we got to do everything. Now, how did you come up with the idea for uh, Halloween, um, you know, a slasher movie about, um, you know, a babysitter alone at home? And uh, where'd, well, where'd that idea all, come first from? Of all, first of all, I, I, I want to, I, I resent the, the term slasher movie. Okay. Slasher movies are what came later uh, as other people tried to emulate the Halloween success. Right. True. Uh, That's Halloween, true. Halloween is not a slasher movie in that you don't see very much blood. In fact, you don't see any blood. You see a knife, but you don't see it entering. It doesn't see it. It's not, the emphasis on that movie, the, 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 rules, the rules were to John Carpenter that I wanted a movie with no blood and no gore, that it was going to be all suspense and, and all, uh, I wanted the intensity of not knowing what was going to happen. And uh, we, we didn't rely on, on, on blood, gore, or special effects mm -hmm. in that movie. So it wasn't a slasher in that, in that respect. That's true. Uh, but uh, the idea came out of, a, as I say in my book, a little bit of inspiration and desperation. I had started this company, Compass, and uh, I, uh, I got a hold of a movie called Siege, which came to me from, from, a, from an agent named Phil Gersh, a very important man. And no one would take the film, so I, he, I was the last stop. And I had just started this company. So I looked at it, and it was brilliant. The uh, first thing I did is re retitle it uh, and call it Assault on Precinct 13. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is still enjoying great reputation. I thought playing the other day on on, on a couple of stations. So uh, that that picture, of course, was directed by John Carpenter, and I thought he was a brilliant young talent, and had done the music as well. And I and I got to thinking about uh, how can I use this fellow before the studio discovered him, because he, he was sure surely going to have a career. And I was on a Actually, what happened was I went to London to, uh, I was in, uh, I got back further. I was in Milan at the film theater where they, where we sell our films, our films to foreign distributors. And Assault on Precinct 13 
got some money back in different countries. And on the way back, I was pretty tired and I was, it was a cold night in October. And I had a cold, I remember. And I stopped at, uh, at my London hotel and I got a phone call from the lobby. And it was a man who announced himself as Michael Myers, who was the uh, head of a company called Miracle Films. And he, he had seen, um, I saw it on PCC in, in Milan, and he thought it was brilliant too. And he wanted to acquire rights for the UK. So I, I said, come on up. And he chatted, nice man. And he, uh, we made a deal for some amount of money, and I was happy. I got some money in my pocket for, for the rights to the United Kingdom. Well, it turns out that the movie was a, a big success in the UK. It had a, had a big following. And uh, so on the way back, it, I, I, well, actually, I went to London because the picture won an award subsequently. And I, uh, on the way back, I thought, I got to find something to do with John Carpenter because he's just a great talent and I want to get it before the studio is pricing out of the market. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, uh, I guess we'll make it horror, a horror film because he had shown some, some talent in that area with, with pre-season with, with the suspense. And I kept thinking about what to do, what to do. And out of nowhere, I, I, I always call it my light bulb moment. Uh, uh, in my head, there was Halloween. I said, wow, let's do a movie on Halloween night, the scariest movie of the year. It'll be a practical thing as well because, you know, making the movie on one night in one location, pretty much, mm -hmm. uh, would save a lot of money because it's not very controllable. Brilliant. So I got the That's idea. brilliant. Yeah, I got the idea, and I got back. The minute I got back, I I landed in at LAX and ran home and told my wife about it. She thought it was great. And I called John Carpenter in the middle of the night, and I said, John, look, I want to do this movie about a, a babysitter being haunted on Halloween night. Oh, he got it. He got it. Let's meet tomorrow. We met the next day. I, I, I think I've said all this on a Netflix special I did, but we met the next day over a tuna fish sandwich. I'll never forget that. Mm. And he loved the idea, uh, and he wanted to do it. But I think in those days, he would have made a movie about uh, about my desk. You know, he just wanted to make a movie. Make some money, so, yeah. So what did, it, what, so, did it, what did it cost to sign John Carpenter to make a movie back then? And what was that? You guys started to make the movie in 77, 1977? Yeah, we, uh, we made it for $300,000 plus 25 more for Donald Pleasant. So for $325,000 mm -hmm. was the total. Launched the career of Jamie Lee Curtis. It sure did. Look where she is now. Yeah, uh, nominated for an Academy Award. You know that's amazing. Yeah, and uh, that was her first job, and she, uh, she still, she still pays uh, tribute all the time to Halloween as having launched her career, and she's right. Uh, but that she wasn't. I didn't cho choose her because of her acting ability, which is, which uh, as it turned out was was pretty good. But uh, I wanted her because her mother was Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. All and right. I figured the publicity I could get by p putting a picture of Aunt Janet Lee in the shower in Psycho, side by side with her daughter screaming, would make press all over the world, which it did. So I got about a million dollars worth of publicity for free. That's amazing. And, and the fact that she could act was a bonus. That was brilliant. More brilliance. Yeah. You, you know, when you're hungry and you don't have a lot of money, that's why the book, again, uh, how a bit of ingenuity, I know, how a bit of desperation and inspiration, because those were the both 
those were the two main factors, the drivers in, in my career then. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, you know, a, a movie like that, which, you know, kind of you thought of on a plane ride or, or, you know, over a tuna sandwich with John Carpenter turned out to be at one point that's changed now, but the highest grossing independent film in history. Yeah, that's true. And remember, when I screened it for the studios, none of them would, would, did, didn't want it. So I was faced with the task of distributing it myself. So I had to create everything, trailer, the posters, get the picture book. I, I mean, it was a one man's job. So when you screened it for the, for the, for the, um, for the, you know, the big production companies and movie houses, what did they say? Why didn't they want to, um, be part of it? Did they not like it or did they just think it was, you know, the violence? What was their, what was their no, feedback? It was, just, it was just beneath it. Did the studios then were really they were the they were the they were the remainder the end of the studio era. Mm-hmm. They were moribund. They were they, they were many of them were in financial trouble. Uh, they didn't have they had old people that had been around forever, and they did they had no concept of what a young independent filmmaker could make. They were still mired in the star system and the formula of the movie making. Mm-hmm. So they didn't pay attention to it. They still did. <laughs> Anything that was that cheap couldn't be worth bothering with. So they just, nobody was assigned. They were unaware. It changed rapidly because Halloween changed the movie business. It sure did. It sure did. Once they found out what what, what that market was and when they found out how, how, much you, how much you could get for a little and how, how, how to learn how to mine the, uh, the independent creators that were out there just getting started, that Halloween changed that whole that whole era. Era it changed it 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 changed the cult it changed the Halloween culture in some ways. I mean, the way that that you know we even looked at the holiday itself changed. I mean, the Halloween Michael Myers mask now is omnipresent even to this day. Um, it's well, re- I, as I as I said, then uh, we appropriated a holiday. And even more so, <laughs> Halloween, uh, the movie, and Halloween, the holiday, are now synonymous. You know, you can't think of one without the other. Right. Uh, I think Halloween, the movie, almost defines Halloween now. And I, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, the merchandising and the, mon- the monetizing of the holiday has been enormous. It's just been incredible. And it's been growing and growing and growing. Of course, now, with the sequel. Do you do? You, are you still involved in in that? I mean, are you receiving any? Not not creatively, but I I participate happily in the results. <laughs> you get that free money coming in every every month. That's great. And it's more every year too. It continues to increase. Yo, <clears throat> exponentially. The the costumes, the the the, the stuff people buy. Uh, uh, even even the movie itself, which which we usually show in a couple thousand theaters every Halloween, but I can I can tell you it's it's, uh, it's seven figures every year, and I only have twenty five percent of of of, of, of That's unbelievable! Congratulations! That's amazing, absolutely it amazing. Is, it is, it's quite a story. It really is. It's one of the great. Uh, I, uh, I, I in my book I talked about it. But uh, I should, probably should do another version of the book, another, uh, uh, another uh, 
re- rewrite it because so much has happened since that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, Malik Akkad, who's the son of the, the guy that helped, who was my partner originally financing this thing, he, he's kind of running uh, the company now. And, uh, I mean, they sell everything from pinball machines to the books to costumes to uh, ashtrays, you know, uh, now it's the video game. I remember watching that movie. Um, let's see, it was it came out in 1978, right, Erwin? Right. So I was at the time 1978. Uh, I was 12 years old, and my mother dropped me off. This is back in the day when a movie theater was just one theater. There wasn't, you know, a multiplex. There wasn't even twins when I first started to go to the movies. And they dropped me off at a place in New Jersey called Rawway, Rawway Movie Theater. She dropped, yep, she dropped me off um, around noon. And once you once you get into the theater, you know, it's not like they're checking you, so you can stay and watch this movie ten times in a row. And oh, my, that's how it used to be in movies. You could stay as long as you want. Yeah. So she dropped me off and I watched that movie and, and it was the first time I ever um, was so afraid. Uh, that I hid behind a seat. I was so ter- I was so terrified by the shape. That's what they called him. Obviously, that was the character name, the shape. Uh, but I was so terrified that I would hide and peek out between the seats to see what was going on. And well, it- you know, the formula the formula was was work. I told John <laughs> at our first meeting, I wanted no blood, no gore. I wanted I kind of I I, I told him this. I want to get their attention on the left and scare them on the right. Well, as it turns out, we were the first or second film. Companies use Panavision, which 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 made that formula work so well. Mm-hmm. It's a it's most uh, it's mostly a story of boo, you know. And uh, I, I told people once about that. I said, well, you know, imagine if you're doing a drama and you you have a scene that's dramatic, it has different effects on different people uh, in different ways. And if you and if you do a comedy, you know, some people get it, some people roll with laughter, others. Are confused, but if someone comes up to you and goes "boo," everybody reacts the same way. It's right. a Pavlovian reaction. Right. So it's a, it's really a controllable response, and it's a much easier thing to do, uh, dr- dramatically, and cinematically than almost anything else. To be honest with you. Right. They call them they call them jumps now. That's kind of what the the terminology now they is. Call them jumps. Jump. Yeah. But I, I to me my, to me it was a formulaic <laughs> thing. I said. You, the, the the scares have to be almost methodically placed so that every so often mm-hmm. you come up with something. And it was novel at the time. Now, of course, everybody tried to do it. Of course, they've, had, they've gone into the realm of sadomasochism, which is, I can't even watch the movies now. They're so awful. Oh, I, don't I, to, I don't know how to get their minds to go those places. Erwin, that's, that's interesting you say that because I, um, I just did a podcast with... Um, a friend of mine, he's kind of a pseudo movie critic, but we're both um, horror film fans. I became a horror film fan or, a, you know, a scary movie film fan from Halloween. Obviously, that started me on that. And and we talked we talked about a couple of movies. And there was a movie recently that came out called The House That Jack Built, which stars Matt Dillon. And it basically follows a serial killer through five acts of the movie where they show him the process of him going out and, and killing his victims. And it was 
some of the most brutal scenes I've ever seen in a movie before. Um, this very disturbing, very disturbing. There was an artistic view to it. I'm not going to lie. There was something that about it was kind of beautiful, but some of the scenes were just, they felt a little gratuitous to me and they were a little too shocking. So I kind of stay away from those movies uh, for the most part. It's hard to really find a scary movie these days that really kind of builds the sense of terror that John Carpenter and yourself built in Halloween. It's just very hard to replicate. Uh, not only in, in, in horror movies, it, it, American movies in general, they're either violent, sadistic, depressing, uh, usually about sexual maladjusted people, uh, about hand. It's hard to find a movie that's script oriented that's really uplifting. Right. You'll find you'll find Europe and Asia making great movies about people, about stories. Not America. It's either explosions or CGI or it's or it's sad on Mr. Carr. The American film business, in my opinion, is is in decline in a big way. I agree. I, I agree. I agree with you hundred percent. You know, one of the iconic parts of that movie Halloween um, was this. This is this this is one of the you know classic movie tracks of all time when you when you hear that a sense of dread fills you it, uh, it, you know i don't know how i don't know how to describe the, the serendipity of that score it's iconic it probably is a i would say it's one of the five most recognizable scores in the history of movies and that's something i agree that is something. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm telling you, this was a strange confluence of luck, hard work. Uh, it's, you know, it's just, it just it changed my life forever, of course. But it, uh, it never ceases to baffle me and amaze me. What a what a what a cultural what a cultural phenomenon I was I was creating. Mm-hmm. Do, so when uh, when the movie came out, what were do you remember what the critics were saying about the movie when it first came out? Were they good or well, bad? First of all, you got to talk about the way it came out. Uh, since I was distributing the movie, and I had limited funds, but I had a lot of experience. I'd been head of major company distributions, so I knew how to distribute a film. But my problem was I didn't have a lot of money, so I I I. I <clears throat> I adopted a strategy that we're using the majors as well sometimes. When they had a movie that they weren't sure about, I didn't want to open a picture in the market where it could get a lot of attention because I thought, well, if it got bad reviews, it would be really noticed. Uh, so I went someplace where if it got bad reviews, nobody would notice. So that was Kansas City. And, and I thought, <laughs> if it, okay. If it did well, well, I could go on from there, which is exactly what happened. What happened in Kansas City was interesting. I, uh, the night it opened, I got the receipts, and they were they were respectable. You know, I was relieved they weren't. I even remember the numbers; they're like two hundred and two hundred fifty thousand, which which was pretty respectable for a fairly movie. But the next day, they doubled, and then exponentially each day they doubled again. From word of mouth. So what I, what I learned from that, of course, was that. This movie was it was phenomenally 
getting word of mouth. It means that everybody who went to see that movie got on the phone right away and told somebody else. Mm -hmm. and, the movie, and before you knew it, we were setting a record there. So I knew we had a, we had something. And then uh, I started to book carefully into other cities. I booked it in Chicago. I booked it here and there. And every place we opened, we were, we were the number one film and we, against all, all the studios. And in fact, I remember uh, in uh, in Chicago, with an interesting story, the exhibitor there, because I knew all these people from my days with the majors, he benevolently uh, offered me, his, he had three great drivers in Chicago. Those days, drivers did a lot of business. But he was offering me these drivers in November. <laughs> it was the last week they were going to be open. Get a snowstorm. So I I, uh, I took the drive in, but I, I asked him if he'd give me his three best quality indoor theaters as well. Well, the, the picture went on to, Halloween went on to, to play eight weeks and amassed over a million dollars worth of film rental. He refused to pay, but I, I managed to get the money. <laughs> and then, of course, we opened in New York. He got great reviews. Chicago, the, the Chicago really was kind of, and New York were kind of exciting because the Village Voice went ecstatic over the movie and, and Roger Ebert thought it was a masterpiece and, and and from there it was just you know one one town after another and uh, it was exciting I have a question so with the success of the movie in in 1978 and you're obviously right away you're going to think okay we have to make a sequel and John Carpenter direct, directed the first one. How come he didn't direct the second one? He didn't want to. He didn't want to make a sequel. What happened was we had a, a commitment for him to do a sequel. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he wanted to do a picture called The Fog. Which was good so, in its own right. I, I, I like that good. movie. It was good. Well, but the point is, uh, so I said, okay, but you're going to make The Fog for us. But he had been approached by Bob Ramey at Embassy and uh, and and despite our oral agreement he, he went with Embassy who offered him a little more money mm -hmm. and we sued him. Oh you did? We sued, Embassy, we sued Embassy and him and that's how Halloween 2 got made because we settled it with a commitment from him to do Halloween 2. Hmm. He didn't want to do it. John didn't want to do another horror movie. So he no. just wrote it, though. He just wrote Halloween too. He didn't direct it. Who, John Carpenter? Yeah, didn't John didn't John and Deborah Hill write Halloween too? Oh, Halloween too. Yeah, that's all he did. He just wanted to participate. <laughs> he just lived up to his obligation, you know. And uh, he didn't direct it. He didn't believe in it. He didn't want to even be, be associated with it. Thought thought it was, uh, you know, he was too important now. What did John Carpenter do? Uh, and listen, the fog was good. And what did he do that was ever any better than that in his career? Not for me to say. I don't. I, I personally, I think John Carpenter is a, a journeyman director. Of, of, of you know, he has some talent. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not. He's not in my top thirty. Right. No. <laughs> and uh, and uh, without without Halloween, I doubt that he would have ever achieved the success he has. I agree. I agree. I and mean, that's why that's why he's so he's so reluctant to pay homage. He I don't even speak to him. I haven't spoken to him in years. I think he's he he, he, so he resents the fact that Halloween happens sometimes. I think. 
There's a lot of people that resent their um, some of oh, their yeah, fame. I found that out. They yeah. don't like to be reminded of the input of other people. Well, you know, there's. Uh, I was watching an interview with the rock group Kiss, um, which interestingly enough came out around the same time of Halloween. They they kind of premiered back then, um, and they're now in the throes of their final final you know world tour, and they were interviewing one of the band members, Gene Simmons, and there's a song that is the top selling song of all time for Kiss, and he hates it. He hates performing it. He hates the song. He resents it because it was more popular as a pop song than it was as a rock and roll, you know, heavy metal song that which is kind of the music that they created. So he 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 resents that that's kind of their most popular song. Yeah, it, uh, I find that a lot of people who achieve success uh, resent the collaborators because they want. They want all the success and all the uh, all the uh, accolades for themselves. Mm -hmm. And John's that kind of a guy. I I, I I learned a lot about what a producer does and and the involvement and and the connection between the executive producer and the producer from uh, the TV show, the TV series, which shows the making of The Godfather. Have you had a chance to watch that? Yeah. Yeah. That was an eye opener, I know, and I was very much I was very much involved because in I was head of distribution at Paramount then. Oh, you were. Yeah. You were involved in The Godfather. Absolutely, I I I, 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 I my brother and I <laughs> set up the whole distribution pattern. So you work with Bob Evans. Very closely. No kidding! Wow. Yeah, if you read if you read read the book that Peter Bott wrote. Uh, uh, he, he quotes when my brother was made president. He quotes Bob Evans saying, "I think we got the wrong yet blondes." <laughs> no, we were very, we were very close. Uh -huh. Wow, how interesting! So, you, so you were the head of what, what did you say? The head of distribution? Yeah, for, I was actually head of the West Coast, uh, half the country. How did you get that job? How, brother, did, how, how did you end up working there? Well, that was my. That's how I came along. I. I started in distribution mm -hmm. at Warner Brothers, and I went from city to city, and I got <laughs> promotions, and uh, um, and uh, eventually wound up in Hollywood as branch manager, and then division manager, and then head of Western Sales. Mm -hmm. So in those days, we had offices in 30, 30, 35 cities. Every, every studio had its own office in every city, and you actually booked the films, and the films were 35 millimeter cans that were delivered, and you know, I did a lot. Of, I've done a lot of things that in an industry doesn't even exist anymore. Tell me about some of the um, the other kind of anecdotal stories uh, during the making of Halloween that maybe a lot of fans and people don't know about. The, oh, there's so many. The, the secrets of Halloween. Secrets? <laughs> well, there are no secrets about Halloween by now. It's been carnival so much. I mean, there's very little that anybody could tell uh, about it anymore. Uh, I remember I remember the first time I, I realized Jamie Curious had to kill a figure because we were, my wife and I were talking to her uh, on set, and she had to do a, 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 
uh, a wardrobe change that she just just pulled off her dress. It was summer. It was fall actually, but it was a warm day. She pulled off her dress and she had on her brassiere, but you could see what an incredible figure she had. Mm-hmm. And I was impressed. <laughs> she was so she was so unaware and didn't care, you know, about you know about a body, and. Uh, she, she, she was very helpful on the set. She was the kind of person who would chip in and move furniture around. She just was so happy to be doing it. Uh, Donald Pleasance was my idea because uh, I had seen him in Will Penny. He was a great Western, and he played a maniacal patriarch of a family. Mm-hmm. And uh, John wanted to use Christopher Lee, and I, and I said, no, John, if you use him, it's going to be another Hammer, Hammer horror movie. We have to. I thought that that. Uh, he would uh, um, that he would lend a bit of gravitas to the movie, and mm-hmm. I didn't think he would take the job. But as it turns out, his daughter in London had seen Assault on PC Thirteen, was crazy about the music. So, so for that reason, his father took the job. Her father took the job, and I and I really believe that he. Who am I talking about? What's his name? Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. I think Donald Pleasance is the fulcrum uh, of that movie. I mm-hmm. think he makes the picture work. Hmm. I, I never, I never thought of it actually, but you're right. I, I can't imagine he's him seeing all, this, we're all seeing all this through his eyes. <clears throat> right. And he's the glue that's keeping this all together, and the fact that he plays it so straight and so. So, so honestly, in Shakespearean almost, is what makes the rest of the movie believable. Because I have a theory: when you make horror movies, you play it straight. If you, because if you wink at the audience, they won't believe you, unless you're making a, a parody. But mm. I just thought Pleasance's performance and his seriousness are what made the movie, what made you take the movie seriously. True, and I like the way he he said the word evil. He used the evil. Yeah. <laughs> trained actor you know perfect actor yeah an, an amazing franchise um that to this day is still going incredibly uh to this day um did did uh did you get to meet with um or speak with in any way rob zombie was were you involved in that when he decided to make oh, the remake I, I i wouldn't know who rob zombie is you know to me those people don't even exist I, I, I don't understand that kind of movie making or culture. And, mm-hmm. I, I think those kind of people, to me, are not worth thinking about. I, I'm yeah. not interested. Yeah. Rod Zombie. Anybody with a name Rod Zombie automatically could go by. <laughs> <laughs> no respect for anybody with a last name Zombie, right? I get it. No, not really. No. I, 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 he made a movie called The House of a Thousand Corpses. I'm not interested in talking about zombie. I mean, yeah, he's irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. No, but the movie, the movie itself, paid. You know, he he paid a lot of homage to uh, previous horror movies. Um, you can see throughout the film where he gave some some respect to certain scenes from certain movies. Even even Psycho, um, he even did a you know kind of a little part of the movie. You can see that it was. Uh, derivative of the movie Psycho. Oh, that's the okay, that, That's all. What? That's probably all he could do is be derivative. Yeah. yeah. What kind of what kind of movies do you watch now, Erwin? What do you what what, what do you enjoy? What's you know? Are, are anything, you watching any anything, television anything, shows? Anything not made in America. 
Okay, okay. There you go. American films are awful. I think I explained why, what I felt earlier. I've been, I've been saying that for years. Um, well, happy for years. You want to see a good movie? It has to be something. They're still making movies overseas and in, in other countries, in Asia and Europe, about people, stories, scripts. You know, uh, stories that involve people and people, mm-hmm. not based on special effects, not CGI. CGI. I don't have Marvel movies. You know, I, I really. I, I, the whole state of affairs is terrible. Even the horror films are so unimaginative. You know, uh, a couple, a couple of good ones were made. Uh, a couple of black directors came up with good, good ideas on those, on that, and you know, and took it in that direction. Uh, I think uh, I can't think of the last American movie. The last movie I saw, it's not an American movie, I guess, but it may have been. Was a movie called Tar. I saw Tar recently. Sure. Uh, yeah. See yep. Yep. My my wife well, really loved that movie. That's the one that she won the Oscar. My <clears throat> I tried to watch all at once the one that's favorite. I couldn't say whether it was it was sensory overload. I didn't know what they were, I didn't even know what I was watching. I I wa- I tried to watch it twice. I watched it the first time, and I said, "Okay, I don't see why everybody likes this." And everyone started bragging about it and telling me to watch it. How do I not like it? So I said, "Maybe I was in a bad state of mind when I watched it." So I watched it again for a second time, and I came away with the same feeling. I don't get it. Why everybody thinks this movie's so great? I don't. This year's crop of movies for Best Picture are the weakest I've ever seen. And it continues to go down that road year after year. The, the, the smaller... Um, well, nobody's, heard, well, there are no, nobody's writing anything. All, it's all AI practically, you know? And uh, it's all sensory overload. None mm-hmm. of it is... There's no, there's no intellectualism. There's no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no feeling in any of these things. Nobody, nobody's writing. Nobody has the time. We'll take the time to sit down and write something. Mm-hmm. I met, everybody's, I, chasing the la- everybody's chasing the last box office hit to fill up the streaming. Well, television television is replacing movies now. Television is far better uh, than than film. Well, yeah, but even that's getting tainted because they're trying to, they're trying to fill all this. By television, you don't mean you mean streaming as well. Sure. Yeah, streaming. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, you know, you take a thing like the best thing I've seen recently is White Lotus. Mm-hmm. It's very I good. noticed had clever twists and turns, character development, and you're right. And it took, and it took, you know, it takes about twelve hours to tell the story. Uh, the old formula of telling a, a story in ninety minutes, nobody knows how to write that way anymore. Yeah, a, the two-hour film is is difficult to really put a lot into now because now it, people want to stretch it out, and it's for money. It's for you know streaming rights, and that's the way Hollywood is going. Um, we watch you know a lot of television, and we go see a lot of movies. We're big fans of everything, so we're pretty good judges of what's good or bad out there. You know, one of the things that changed also um, for me anyway was the the invention of the anti-hero and you know the very first character that i can remember you know think that was the anti-hero was was tony soprano from the sopranos uh, sopranos probably <clears throat> the show of all time mm-hmm. the guilty pleasure because he's 
you're celebrating ugly people, violent people, but it's so brilliantly done, and the characters are done so well. Yeah. So a, a little sidetrack, you know, I met a guy the other day, um, you know, this is the first time I'm talking about it because I'm not quite sure what to do with it yet, but um, I, he, I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Uh, he had agreed and then, I don't know, he didn't take my call, so I'm not sure what happened, but listen, listen to this, Erwin, you'd appreciate this. So we go back into the, you know, 1960s, we go to, um, you know, mob era, mafia area, 1960s, New Jersey and New York. And this guy with a couple of his buddies basically were barbers that cut the hair of made men and, and you know, mob guys and capos and all those guys. They had a barber shop in the city that all these guys went to and hung out in. So they were the barbers and they heard all these stories and saw all this stuff going around in the neighborhood. And he has a tons of stories that he was sharing with me it was i mean it was basically the proverbial fly on the wall as these and these guys you know you know you go to you, you go get you cut your hair but I, I, grew, I grew up with these guys you know I, I i knew them firsthand are you east coast guy are you an east coast guy i grew up in brooklyn oh okay yeah so I you can't yeah guys i saw just safe <laughs> yeah I mean, I got a first-hand look, so I mean, I knew these guys, and uh, I didn't want anything to do with them. They, and actually, when I became successful in Hollywood, a bunch of my old-time friends came at me. You know, wanted to muscle in on my business, but I, I, I avoided it. I got muscled in in New York. This was in the '90s when I, I owned a trucking company in New York. And it was building very nicely, and you know I was kind of getting known in some of the the larger districts, the um, the fashion district, and um, there was a furniture area of New York, and, and my trucks were coming and going all the time, and and the Teamsters started to put pressure on me uh, to start to you know join their union because I was just a guy trying to make a living, and they started visiting my trucks in certain locations. And, you know, kind of strong arming mean, my guy saying, you can't park here. You're not a union truck. Oh, and yeah. They, they, have a, they have a methodical way to go about it. And uh, if, they, if they target you and they really want you, it's tough. So when, when, when they started to put pressure on me, uh, I started to notice, like, I, I was resistant. I really I was, didn't know what I was doing or what I was up against. And, and I started to notice that I was getting more parking tickets that I ever did. Uh, every day, each one of my trucks would come home with one or two parking tickets. So I, I put it together that maybe these guys were were putting pressure on some of the brownies, they called them, that went around and did the parking enforcement. And they were saying, hey, when you see this truck, give them a ticket. Because um, I my, my parking tickets, you know, violations tripled um, in one month, I remember. And I was like, oh my God, what's going on? How's this happening? I figured they maybe they had some influence on that. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. They're, not, they're not people you want to know. So what do you do? What do you, you know, listen, I, I understand you had a little of a health scare recently. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling pretty good for a guy to be 89 years old. I had a pacemaker put in mm -hmm. and about four weeks ago. I'm feeling pretty good now. Good. You're home resting yeah. and reading and, you know. Oh, I'm not resting anymore. I'm out. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little lower in energy than I'm, than I'm used to. But. I'm getting better each week, you know. Uh, mm. I'm used to. I can't do my regular physical exercises, so I, 
well, like I do walking and stuff, but but uh, no, I'm 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 doing great. I, you know, I'm I'm not, I've been lucky most of my life. I've been healthy, you know, fit. Right. Uh, that making movies was you know exhilarating, and I think helped keep me young and met a lot of interesting people, and and of course, financially, as it turns out, thanks to Halloween, uh, it, it's been very rewarding. You know, as I say, it, it keeps growing. I mean, the phenomenon. It's be growing. It's uh, it's uh, Malik Akkad, uh, who's who's the son of a Mustafa that I work with. Yeah, uh, he's done a good job of growing the brand, and uh, every year they come up with more. I mean, with more 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 iterations. That you know, last year they had a pinball machine sold out in 20 minutes, and uh, I think we'll have a video game next year, which ought to be sensational. A virtual reality a video game with Michael Myers. I love it. I'm buying it. If that happens. If there's a oh, Halloween, I'm going to buy one. Well, Michael Myers has become a folk hero. He's no longer. He's not a slasher. He's he's a he's the lovable Michael Myers. Right. Kids. <clears throat> when I when I, I would identify with him because he's so misunderstood. Yeah, there was you know there was this. This uh, always this ongoing talk about you know Michael Myers versus Freddy Krueger versus Jason. Uh, Michael Myers. First of all, they all imitate. Yes. And in fact, the guys that did Friday the Thirteenth, two guys, there were some mafia guys from Boston, and I knew them from they were they were theater owners as well, Mm -hmm. and they called me up about I'm like an idiot. I in those days I I gave them the formula. They wanted to know how I did it and what I did, and they made they made Friday the Thirteenth. They Sold it to Paramount. But, you know, it was the same thing. And it was difficult territory. Every one of them just, you know, they, they took the formula and they ran with it. And uh, I only regret that I wasn't smart enough to realize that I could have cornered the market on it. By that time, I was being, you know, I was being seduced by studios. Sure. MGM wanted, they wanted me to be head of MGM. And uh, so, my head got, I was so trained to want to be part of the major studio system that I didn't realize that I had something much greater. I had my independence and I had my own company and I had a little falling out with Mustafa. We had some misunderstandings and we broke, but we, we, we did something we shouldn't have done. We broke that company up. We could have been, we could have been bigger than the Weinstein company, although mm-hmm. I'm, I'm yeah. wind up with <laughs> yeah, you don't want, you don't want to be associated with that name, even the last name. You know, conjures up uh, really negative images. Yeah. Well, you know, we're already there. There won't be a sequel next year, but they don't have enough time to do that. But there'll be all kinds of events. In fact, there's an event coming up in Pasadena. They've asked me to come and sign autographs, give out, give away books. Uh, It's uh, in in Pasadena on in September. There's the 45th anniversary of Halloween. A big, big, you know, convention thing. That's where it was filmed at, right? In Pasadena. Parts of it. Mm-hmm. And the other part was filmed uh, right off of uh, Orange Grove, I think. Uh, it was right near Schwab's, New Schwab's, in those days, Schwab's drugstore on, off of Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, right off of Hollywood Boulevard. I used to do my stuff in the day and run out there at night. Did you, did, you know, back in those days, were you a, a Hollywood nightlife guy? Did you get out there and and, uh, no. and run around? No, no. Uh, 
I did sometimes, you know, but it was a, it's a much more benign thing than this today. I mean, there were a lot of clubs, mm -hmm. disco. You know, in those days, it was the it was the uh, it was the disco era, and it was sweet. It was nice. It was the drugs weren't as pervasive as they are now. Life in general, you know, was much sweeter. It's ugly today, you know. It was. It's ugly. People were still pretty. They dressed nicely when they went out. Yeah. Women looked good. Men looked good. You know, we didn't get into this freaky stuff until uh, I don't know. Now, now every 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 venue is a freak show. You know, everybody tries to look crazier than the the other one. Mm -hmm. The di the dismal tide is what people call it. The dismal tide just keeps coming in. I don't. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. I think like every democracy, we're probably going to go down like everybody else. I, I, I very, very, I have, I've never felt so, so sad and so afraid of where this country's going now. And, uh, and I don't, I don't see it changing. No, it's not going to change. And, and it is, we're, we're on a slippery slope now of which we can't escape. I, I agree with you. And, uh, it's and, it's, and it's reflected in the movies that they make. Hmm. Very true. Most of them, a lot of them are nihilistic, without hope, or mm -hmm. angst-ridden. You know, every movie you see has got somebody with a problem, or somebody with a gender problem, or somebody, uh, you know, who's going to murder somebody else. The most popular things on television that we're going to watch are these end-to-end -end, uh, stories on 2020, and, and, and all of these, you know, women killing their husbands, and husbands killing their wives, these murder shows. They love those shows. They watch them endlessly. It's talking, you know, well, because it's it's just the nature of the, uh, the human nature. You know, we see a, um, uh, a car crash or a train wreck. We stop and, and we want to watch it. We want to see the carnage. You know, that's kind of where we've come as uh, as a species. And it's not just here. It's global. It's everywhere. It's the same thing. It's Things, global, yeah. It's yeah. Global, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's manifest here mostly because we are the affluent. We, we, we kind of set trends, and now what starts here is spread. And uh, it, that's how you get political situation we have around the world. It's, uh, it, you know, it has odd, uh, you know, it, it, it's so oddly reminiscent of 1930s in, in Europe. It's, it's scary. Uh, but I'm waiting to see, I, I'm waiting to see the first movie that comes out from Hollywood that's uplifting, warm, positive. I don't see one, I can't think of one. Or hmm. even, even, or even well written. I can't, I can't think of one right now you either, see, but there's. You movies, have you seen a movie that, that's up for an award from a, that, that, that you can honestly say is a, a, a well-developed, well-produced, well, well, well-realized film? And makes you feel good. Um, yeah. Well, it doesn't even make you feel good. It just satisfies you. Tar is the only one I can think of, and that's a depressing movie too. Well, there was there was some movies. Um, I, I can't remember, remember the director, but Lion was uh, was a really great movie. And again, that wasn't American. Uh, well, was American. Yeah, there there have been some movies, but you're right, not American made. Not yeah. American made. RRR, RRR, which is a overload for the senses, which did not get any true recognition this year, uh, but fans loved it. And that was kind of a, 
a movie. The people that are okay in movies in American movies are looking, are, you know, the movie business I've always said in the, co the companies that they, they have one, they're all in the job keeping business. Mm -hmm. That's their first, it's driven by fear and, and keeping your job. So what they do always, as they did then, is they always pick the, the success of last year and they try to emulate it because if it doesn't work, they can always say, well, we, we hired the best actors, we hired the most, you know, it worked for them. The Marvel movies begets another Marvel movie, begets another CGI movie. And after a while, they all blend together. You can't tell one movie from the next. Yeah. And they still, and they get an audience. So. Well, it just, it makes money. You have a formula, you repeat the formula until well, the formula doesn't work any longer. That's what the movie business in this country has become. It's become a formulaic assembly line mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of, and it's also what it's producing. Unfortunately, is uh, there's this generation of imbeciles who uh, who can't read or think, but want their, their senses to solve it. Well, you, if you think it's bad now, um, we don't, you know, because the cell phone now is the movie screen of 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 you know current yeah. time so we can watch a movie on our phone uh yeah. and the only the only thing that prevents us from not being able to do that is internet access and once elon musk has you know his part of his master plan is to put you know hundreds of thousands of satellites circling the planet which will allow everyone to have internet access anywhere anytime which makes sense by the way we should all have that um, for a lot of reasons other than just watching movies or television programs. But once everyone in the world has access to information, you're going to see uh, the real down, the downgrade of humanity start to happen when you get people in the middle of the Amazon who haven't watched the Kardashians and they get to well, see, you, got, you know, you that got, kind of... Uh, well, that's what you got now, you know. The, <clears throat> half the world that lived in darkness and didn't know anything about people living in this country in, in the Western world. Now they see it that, and they want a piece of it. That's why everybody's on the move. Yeah. Everyone's informed. Whereas a uh, hundred years ago, somebody who was living in some village in, in India, that he didn't know any better. That was his world. Yeah. Now we see what people have, he sees, you know, people on super yachts and he says, why shouldn't I have some of that? You know? So, yeah, that's that's what's happening, you know. Enlightenment is causing that. Well, the migration, the human migration, um, you know, is being motivated by that, by just wanting things that, um, to, you know, just having a roof over your head with running water is something well, that a lot of yeah. people would would they're, love to have. Yeah, they're just not accepting anymore. They're, they're a lot. They're questioning. Yeah. They're, they're questioning it and... and and, and denying it, and uh, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna get any better. You, you know, you can build walls, you can build walls, but you know, but you know, like all walls, as 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 the French found out, seventeen ninety seven, can be crashed down. That's right, Erwin. It was you know, great having you, know, you on. I, I want to thank you for um, for this time. We spent almost an hour here. Um, oh, did we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could I can spend five hours talking about this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. uh, I appreciate you coming on, my friend. I really do. Um, oh, great, great, great. Is this live? 
No, this is not live. Um, I'll do a little editing on it just to set it up so I can fit a little bit more space in there. Uh, but once I have it live, uh, I'll, I have your phone number now, your cell phone. I'll send you the link to it and you can listen to it. Oh, okay, great. Well, this, is, this has been a pleasure. I hope I made your day interesting. <laughs> you, you did. You did. I love I love talking to folks like yourself. Um, gives me a lot of uh, uh, historical reference on the past and and some other things so i appreciate yeah, the I time I, I wish i could be more positive but right. <laughs> no it's okay i understand all right nice talking to you same Irwin. be well bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.